podcast, Women in Crypto, hosted by the Association for Women in Cryptocurrency, sponsored by Bracewell, LLP. Bracewell is a leading law and government relations firm whose award-winning teams lead the market in cutting-edge transactions and litigation, regulatory matters, and government relations. You can learn more at Bracewell.com. We couldn't do this podcast without them, and I'm very excited to be talking today about a topic that I'm super passionate about, and I know these two ladies are, which is crypto asset recovery, something that we're all either currently involved in or, for some of us, our past lives were all about. The Association for Women in Cryptocurrency is a global professional network of women and male allies around the world who advocate for the equitable inclusion of women in the future of digital finance blockchain technology, and Web3. I want to make sure it's clear that the views of the speakers are their own and do not necessarily represent those of the association, its sponsors, or its board of directors. This podcast is our opportunity to showcase the incredible work being done by our members around the world in the crypto, blockchain, and Web3 industries. I'm your host, Amanda Wick, founder and CEO of the Association for Women in Cryptocurrency, and I'm incredibly excited to introduce you to Joanna Summers and Helen Pugh, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves. So Joanna and Helen, can you tell us a little bit about yourselves and how about uh, Helen, we'll start with you. Thanks so much, Amanda, for having us on the podcast. Um, I'm a barrister in London, so part of the um, Association Women in Crypto in, in the London chapter. My background has been fraud work, um, insolvency, commercial litigation until the last few years when there's been a bit of an explosion of crypto-related litigation in the UK. So I'm now heavily involved in that, doing fraud um, recovery cases where there's been misappropriated crypto assets, advising office holders on insolvencies involving crypto assets and, and even things like shareholder disputes where it, where it involves a, a crypto company. Joanna? Good morning. Thank you so much for having us today, Amanda. I am with Asset Reality and we are building the world's first seized asset management platform, laying the groundwork for successful asset forfeiture and recovery to help governments and insolvency practitioners seize, manage, and liquidate uh, both physical and digital assets. And my background comes from the Department of Justice U.S. Marshal Service, where I spent 10 years in the asset forfeiture division and I ran our complex assets unit. So any ongoing business or complex financial instrument that was targeted for federal forfeiture came through my team for valuation, management, custody, and disposal. And I'm Amanda, I, I know I worked with you while I was at DOJ, and I'm so happy that we're together again uh, in Women in Crypto, and I'm the DC member ambassador. I'm very excited to have you both. I want to jump right in and touch on something that you just said, Joanna, because I know we have a tendency in the US to refer to it as asset forfeiture. A lot of folks abroad call it asset recovery. And I want to touch on like a very basic foundational concept, which is the difference between civil, what we would call civil and criminal forfeiture in the United States, but what a lot of countries would call non-conviction-based forfeiture and criminal forfeiture. And Joanna, I know you you are working in a ton of countries around the world. Can you just really quickly explain the difference so that people kind of know what it is we're talking about when we're talking about asset recovery? Because I know Helen's going to talk about civil cases um, where there's not even a crime involved, but can you talk about cases where there might be a crime, but it's not forfeited criminally, which I think confuses people. Sure. So civil forfeiture or non-conviction based forfeiture is a court proceeding that's brought against the property that was derived from a crime or used to commit an offense. 
rather than the person who committed the offense. There is no criminal conviction required, but the government is still required to prove in court that the property was linked to a criminal activity. So civil forfeiture, in my opinion, complements criminal forfeiture because it fills in the gaps where criminal forfeiture is not always feasible. So think about your cases where a defendant's a fugitive or they're deceased or maybe they're unknown, which is the case in a lot of money laundering schemes and the case in a lot of cryptocurrency fraud. If you think about uh, romance scams, pig butchering schemes, investment frauds, there's cases where maybe someone was contacted through an online dating app and you just don't know who that person is on the other end of that dating app. So civil forfeiture is particularly helpful in cases where the offense was committed in a country that doesn't provide mutual legal assistance to the United States. So think about a country like China. Even if you did manage to find the criminal, it's highly unlikely you would be able to drag them into a U.S. court at a later date. In, in terms of crypto asset recovery... Civil forfeiture shows that it's all about the need for speed. It's the battle to get to the funds the fastest in crypto asset recovery. And we all know here how quickly cryptocurrency can move. It just takes the click of a button. And criminals know this as well. So without this civil forfeiture aspect, the funds for the victims of financial crimes would quickly go to zero. Yeah, I think that's something that people don't appreciate. And unfortunately, I think there are groups in the United States from like a political lobbying perspective who kind of really kind of butcher that narrative that for us, when we're trying to help crime victims, the non-conviction based forfeiture or the civil forfeiture process of getting the property back for the victim when we can't get a body that's a defendant is oftentimes sometimes the best thing that we can do. Most of my victims when I was a prosecutor, financial crime victims would have far preferred to have their money back, even if it meant not necessarily catching the criminal. And so I think people don't realize how essential that aspect is for making financial crime victims whole. And Helen, we haven't really even touched on the civil side because you mentioned uh, during your introduction, a lot of the work that you do in asset recovery that doesn't even involve a crime. And I'm curious if you could touch on that because I think you do both cases that where a crime is involved, but sometimes a crime isn't involved at all, right? Yeah, that's right. So to complicate things, I would say in the UK, we have the criminal forfeiture. We then have civil forfeiture under the Proceeds of Crime Act, which as Joanna said, is this setup where if you prove 51% essentially, that a crime has been committed, then you can seize the proceeds of that crime. And that's a much lower threshold than proving that you're sure somebody is a criminal and that the proceeds are proceeds of crime. But then we have the third limb, which is just pure civil court actions, which are remedying civil wrongs. So misrepresentation, deceit, breach of contract, those sorts of things, you just go straight to the civil court. Um, and so I do, I do do a lot of that. And actually, in terms of speed, I think, um, I mean, I would say this given I work in the field, but I do think we have the edge on the law enforcement agencies because you don't have to go through layers of authorities. If it's an overseas jurisdiction, the courts in the UK are still very open to issuing injunctions abroad. Now, whether you can enforce that abroad is a different issue, but you at least have something 
quick. I mean, you can get it in 24 hours if you need to, if you've got the right case um, and, you know, the right tracing evidence or what have you. And then a lot of the exchanges will cooperate, even if they are based overseas. So I think often the civil route can react much quicker because it can take a while to get law enforcement interested. I have seen that. And it's interesting because I've had that conversation with some lawyers in the United States where I've said, you know, if you can find a UK tie, you guys have some tools in your toolbox that the United States doesn't. And to Joanna's point, when you have the need for speed, oftentimes you you want what we would call parallel investigations, where you want to call law enforcement and have them investigating, but you also want to work civilly just in case it can move faster. And I, I find it fascinating in crypto, to your point, that I have seen some amazing cases that folks in the UK are doing where in 24 hours, they can get a response from a, a exchange like that you said, oftentimes is, is cooperating for, for whatever reason. But, you know, Joanna mentioned earlier when she said defendants that aren't in countries with mutual legal assistance treaties. And and in our old life, we called those MLATs. But the process by which law enforcement has to go through to officially request records, sometimes you get lucky. And I know there's some state district attorneys in the US who are doing that where they're basically like courtesy requesting freezes or requesting documents. But it's very difficult, especially for the feds to informally do that. And so I think it's an interesting thing that a lot of people don't know that not only can the civil go faster, but that the UK has these really unique processes that in some cases, if you can get that jurisdictional hook, you guys can move insanely fast on, is it, is it, I think it's, I always get it wrong. It's like Bankers Trust or Norwich Pharmacol orders or something like that, both, right? Both. They're two different things, but you're absolutely right. And you normally want them both. Yeah, it's actually quite pleasing to hear that. Um, because usually we're looking across the pond quite enviously at the <laughs> at the litigation tools um, that are used in the US usually. Well, and and I think it's a combination of both, right? I mean, like you don't you don't necessarily want either or. I know um, one of my a mutual friend that we have who's a former AUSA, Evelyn Sheehan. Uh, at Cobra and Kim, I think she does very similar work. And and what I what I've heard is that it's a, it's both, right? You want to be looking if you're if you're doing it right. You want to be looking at the best jurisdictions, who has the best process. I think some folks just don't realize that the UK is an option. Um, and I think you guys have some advantages here that the US doesn't. Yeah. Whereas you see in the bankruptcy with the FTX, you saw it got anchored in the States rather than in Bahamas. And the Bahamas has got similar system to the UK. So it just depends on which tools are best in your particular situation, really. And yes, England does have the advantage of moving fast if it's a um, hot pursuit case where you're trying to freeze an exchange um, wallet, for example, where you've traced funds to. Yeah. I mean, one of the things, one of the differences that I've noticed, and and this is just probably my own bias, having been a a prosecutor that tried to get other prosecutors to do asset recovery. And Joanne, I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this, but it feels like often the focus in the United States is on punitive measures, like getting the body, getting the defendant, prosecuting somebody and putting them in jail. While it feels like the UK prioritizes asset recovery first, some of that might be because your jail system doesn't give like as much time. So the punitive measures are somewhat less. But I'm curious, do you, would you agree with that characterization? And if so, like, how do you think that affects like the outcomes of cases? Yeah, I'll, I'll stop with that. I have more questions, but we'll, we'll stop there. Is, do you think, is that a, 
unfair characterization and what do you think that leads to, I guess? No, I think that is a fair characterization. I think in the US, we do prioritize getting the individual and we focus on the punitive measures. And I understand that, you know, emotionally, a lot of the time, that's that's what makes us feel good, right? Like we want to get that criminal and we want to see them behind bars and we want to make them pay for their actions. But when you take a step back and you look at things like non-conviction-based forfeiture and you understand the differences in the two, you you just kind of come to the realization that that's not always feasible and you have to think about it a little bit differently. And, you know, in my DOJ life, uh, working at the U.S. Marshals Service, I can tell you for sure that taking away the proceeds of crime from victims, taking away the yachts, the planes, the jewelry, that's really where you're hitting these criminals where it hurts. Like you're, you're taking away their toys. And then transitioning over to my life at Asset Reality, I've spoken to so many victims of cryptocurrency fraud. And to your point earlier, Amanda, the first thing every victim has said to me is, how do I get my money back? That was my college fund. That was my life savings. That was my parents' retirement fund. That's what moves the needle on their life and will really make an impact on their life is getting that money back and making them and their family whole. So I think when you start to look at it from that perspective, you realize that there are a lot of differences. And and Helen and I were talking about this the other week as well, that it is more of a focus in the US, I think, on, on criminal than than getting the asset back to a victim. And I think there should be more of a focus on asset recovery itself, allowing for that recovered assets to be returned to victims, especially when you look at things like um, the IC3 report, which is put out by the FBI every year. Cryptocurrency investment fraud rose from $907 million in 2021 to $2.57 billion in 2022. That's over a 180% increase. And there were over 19,000 uh, victims of romance scams reported to IC3 in 2022. And those are just the victims who reported and the victims in the United States. So I, I think when you start to hear these staggering numbers, you realize there's got to be more of a focus on the asset recovery itself. And Helen, you know, I know that it just seems to me like the UK might have some more legal tools to address that than we do in the United States. Yeah, I mean, I think the the English approach to asset recovery essentially supposes that the as long as you can identify through the tracing an account which you can point to and say this is more than likely to be involved in the original wrongdoing and it's got funds in still, then it's usually you'd think um, unlikely that someone who is engaged in that wrongdoing will pop up and try and contest that. So often, although these things are urgent and there's a lot of upfront work, once you get to the point of having served the injunction and spoken to the cooperative exchange, it's unlikely that your wrongdoer is going to pop up and say, oh, actually, I'm going to fight you over this, partly because they want to protect their identity and avoid the criminal penalties that will follow. Well, and you raise a really several important points, one of which is this is why the importance of having crypto tracers like there's unfortunately a lot of companies now that are re-scamming people where victims will say, I've lost my funds. And then they'll go online and they'll find like crypto investigators who are saying, oh, we'll find your funds for you. And for X, they actually charge a percentage of the stolen amount and they will re-scam people because to your point, 
if they can't trace it quickly and the funds aren't there, there's nothing to be collected back. Um, and, and it's unfortunate because I know the three of us all know really good companies that are legitimately doing this work that will not take money from people that will say, look, I can tell you with just a quick search, like whether this money is gone or not, and you shouldn't throw good money after bad. And then there are just scam companies that are out there that are sadly like re-scamming people. So I think that kind of like PSA message of if you're a scam victim, please, please, please be so careful before you reach out to a company that says it can get your money back for you. Because unfortunately, so many of those are scam artists. But to the other point in there, in the United States, the the movement to like abolish non-conviction-based forfeiture frequently points to cases where a Joanna and I know this from our past lives, but where like people get pulled over and have like a suitcase full of unexplained cash, right? Maybe they've got like a prior record and whatever it is, there's like a seizure. It frequently involves seizures of cash and unexplained massive amounts of cash, right? Which is not traceable. Whereas to your point, if you've gone through and you've traced stolen funds in crypto and you can make that showing to a court, this is where you have an established, like a legally established, like, no, these are more likely than not, or whatever the standard is in the UK, proceeds of a crime. It's not like we're just saying this is super sketchy that they have files of cash. It's like, well, we can actually trace back to here's where the funds were stolen and here's where they ended up in this account. And whoever's controlling this account is in receipt of stolen funds. And I think that gets lost that you don't just like lose all due process when you're doing this. You're actually tracing funds to proceeds and then saying to a criminal, if you're the person who stole these or if you know how these got here, by all means, step forward and claim them in court and identify yourself. And that's a very different dynamic in non-conviction-based forfeiture in crypto cases. And I think it is in cash. And I think I think that's lost sometimes. I will say, I also think people don't appreciate the actual traceability of crypto. And I know this gets talked about a lot and I see haters online who don't really understand this. But Joanna, I'm wondering like if you could talk briefly and then Helen, I'd love to know from like the civil side that the issues that people have in in tracing crypto, because I I don't think it's as anonymous as some people still want to believe it is. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and, and just backing up for a minute, I agree too, Amanda. We've seen a lot at Asset Reality over the past year of unfortunately victims being re-victimized by some of these law firms or supposed investigators um, who demand money up front and claim they can 100% get the proceeds back. And it, there's just so many red flags there. Like, first off, you shouldn't be paying someone up front and no one should be guaranteeing you they can get your funds back. And, and there are a lot of people who are very good at doing the asset tracing out there. Uh, but unfortunately, there there are a lot of people out there looking to re-victimize people who are looking for help after they've just been scammed. So just wanted to point out that we've seen a lot of that too. So I definitely think people should be careful with that. And Helen, I'm curious on the civil side, because I know Joanne and I spend a lot of time or used to spend a lot of time tracing on the criminal side. And there's all kinds of blockchain analytics tools that you can use for that. But I'm curious, how does it work on the civil side? Is the asset recovery tracing process similar? I know the tools might be different, but but is the process similar? Yeah. So I think from what I can gather, a lot of the uh, software is a bit more restricted in, in civil. So I think um, the software providers might have extra add-on tools which law enforcement get access to, which we might not have access to on the civil side of things, essentially just responsible 
behavior, I think, by these software companies. Um, but that's not to say we don't have really extensive tools at our disposal. So there's on-chain tracing that we use. And often, certainly my experience is, you're not just tracing along one branch, if you like. You'll find that there are similar patterns because it's unlikely that only one person is being scammed. This person is often involved in multiple similar scams. Um, So from the analytic process of this software, you can draw patterns, you can you can show that funds from other suspect transactions are flowing through the same wallets. So that's all hugely useful and quite compelling to the court. But in addition, you have the off-chain research as well. So old school detective work where often through the Bankers Trust and the Norwich Pharmacal, you can get the KYC documents from the exchange. And then you use the old school Hercule Poirot sort of like, hmm, um, let's see what we can find out about the KYC people on the account. Um, Now, sometimes you'll come across a passport that's clearly not genuine and it's part of the fraud. But quite often, um, they will have had to put forward uh, genuine KYC documents and you can you can trace and you can ask the exchange what other accounts do these people um have the kyc to and trace that way as well um so it's a bit of a mixture of both really just drawing the dots helen we've seen a lot of that too where you start with a small victims case and then you see the funds flowing in and out of the same wallet address and more victims come forward and before you know it it's been $10,000 through the same wallet over and over again. And, and suddenly you're up to a multi-million dollar case. And I think that's where doing really good investigative research there comes in handy. Yeah. And I will say, I'm curious, uh, Helen, if you've seen this, because I know I've seen in the United States where sometimes the private attorneys that are working for one victim, right? Maybe, maybe, a, maybe a victim who loses a lot of money or has like the means to try to hire a law firm to get it back. That law firm then basically makes like a package presentation and says, in order to get law enforcement, basically pick it up. It's like, well, it's not just my victim that lost five, six, maybe seven digits. If you add, like, if you look at this wallet, it took all these other deposits around the same time. And you're looking at my victim times 50 times 100 because nobody ever just kind of like does one scam, sees how it goes. And then it's like, oh, I've got enough money for like, they blitz, right? Like they, they, they almost like DDoS attack victims. And it's like, well, let me just send this out to 200 possible victims and see, oh, look, I've got, you know, 80 victim pickup rate, right? It's, it's never... It's never usually just one victim in these cases. And I'm curious if folks do that on the UK side, if you see kind of, because I know you guys have like a private prosecution system that's very interesting, but I'm curious, do you see like law firms able to kind of pick up and say, oh, this just went from a one victim case to like a 50 or a hundred victim case? Well, they, they're definitely trying to do that and put together group actions on the civil side, because if you've lost 50,000, that's a huge amount of money to an individual. I mean, it's like twice the average annual income in the UK or something. But you take it to a lawyer and they say, well, that won't get you very far in the process sometimes. Um, By the time you've paid for lawyers, investigators, court fees, and what have you. So if you put together the group of victims, then they only have to contribute a small, smaller amount, and then it's a many multiple claim, and then you might get interest from litigation funders because we have a very active mature litigation funding market in the UK. Um, so I definitely see that. 
Can you explain that just a little bit, just in case people don't know what a litigation funder is for anyone listening? Because I think the average person really doesn't understand that there are actually entities that fund litigation. And they think, I think a lot of people I talk to think I have to pay for my own case. And if I don't have money, it's hopeless. But can you explain what litigation funders are and how they can sometimes kind of help a case get made even if the the individual person doesn't have their own money? Yeah. So litigation funding is now permitted in the UK. And there are basically these huge companies backed by hedge funds or investors um, who will who you can approach with a summary of the case and all the information and they will take a view on whether they think you're going to win or not. And then they'll essentially make you an economic offer and say, you know, to run it to this to this stage, we want X multiple of the legal costs. There's been an issue recently in the UK about whether you can have a percentage of the outcome. And I think you can, but it's quite highly regulated. So you have to get your agreement in order. So there are various different commercial economic deals that can be done. But there are definitely companies out there. The problem in crypto is um, twofold, really. One, you often don't have a huge amount of time to negotiate these things if you're if you're moving fast. And uh, so it might not be suitable for that hot pursuit case. Um, and secondly, they're nervous about the value of crypto because they will work on a, well, it's worth X value. But we all know that the volatility and the value of a lot of cryptocurrencies is huge. I mean, even Bitcoin fluctuates hugely. And so at the moment, I think there's a lot of appetite to get involved, but they're still trying to work out how their economic models work with an asset that fluctuates so wildly in value. Yeah, that's an interesting thing because I know like Joanna and I had some cases where that it was so old where they bought it at like six hundred or a thousand dollars and what was, you know, like a maybe a six digit crime by the time it gets prosecuted became an eight digit crime, right? Because of because yeah. of over time, like what it could be. And conversely now, right, if something happens when it's at thirty five thousand and then it plummets, to your point, like that can really impact the because because the lit funders are kind of like gamblers, like they're they're essentially like litigation mm-hmm. gamblers, which I find fascinating, right? Like it's like it's like betting on the house. That's all. That could be a whole another podcast topic. But I think it's just it's the reason I think it's important is because I don't think a lot of people out there think it's an option to get an attorney. Like they don't know mm-hmm. that it's always worth. Ta- I think it's always worth talking to a good attorney who knows and can really tell you like your chances. And I think that finding crypto attorneys who actually know what they're talking about can really help victims. And I've had some victims that I send to great attorneys and the attorney, the, the, the proof of their greatness is that they look and they say, real talk, that money's gone. Yeah. Like, and you'll throw good money after bad, which is sometimes the nicest thing that you can tell somebody is the truth, right? And not take more yeah. of their money uh, or a lot more of their money, depending. But it's um, it's a very real thing. I think, you know, one of the things, Joanna, I'd love to go back to that you were talking about the importance. I think we all know like the importance of crypto asset recovery. I think in the United States on the criminal side, and frankly, I think the civil side is trying, but is having the speed issues. But I, my understanding is, is there's a new FATF rule coming out. I was wondering if you could talk about that um, because I think it is going to encourage everyone to do this more. Is that 
Do I have that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, FATF just came out of a conference in October where they did a lot of discussions on strategic initiatives to improve asset recovery. And we've all known that asset recovery has been underperforming globally. And that have just announced last week that they're starting the process of improving the standards for freezing, seizing, and managing seized assets. And you know we've heard this before, but it's great to see a renewed focus from them on it. And I think that this is going to really help put pressure on countries that are underperforming in these areas of fraud and, and seized asset management to ensure that they do get an effective system in place. Because overall, that's what's going to help improve the returns for victims and for their society. So another point that FATF came out with was they they did formally recognize non-conviction-based forfeiture. And they noted in their revised recommendations that they require countries to have policies and operational framework that prioritize asset recovery and prioritize establishing that non-conviction-based uh, confiscation structure or framework in their legal systems. So they are promoting uh, the non-conviction-based forfeiture as well. And a lot of people are following that US model of it. But I think especially talking to Helen and some other countries, it's great to get that global approach to it because there are different countries doing different aspects of it very well. And it's great to have a body like FATF that can sit in and kind of pull all of that together. Well, I think one of the things, and, and Helen, I want to come back to you because I know I think the UK also recently passed a, is in the process of passing a law or is doing something to kind of like make it easier to do crypto asset seizures and recovery. But I want to touch on something that you said, Joanna, which is the perception of which countries are doing it well. Because I think there are countries that don't have non-conviction based forfeiture statutes, right? They don't have the regime and they need to build that, right? And I know like a former colleague of ours, Steph Cassell, I think he travels the world helping countries who want to put that into place because he literally drafted the statute in the United States, right? And so those countries that don't have a framework, not doing it well. I think one of the things that frustrates me about the United States is that it's moving backwards, whereas countries like the UK are moving mm -hmm. forwards, where in the United States, we have a massive amount of resources. We have like the system is in place and we just don't do the best job training and requiring prosecutors and agents to do the asset recovery as much as kicking in doors and putting people in jail. I think that's my frustration is that we have the potential to be doing it, we're doing it badly for how well we could be. But if you just compare countries like country outputs, yes, the U.S. is probably here compared to some others. But given the capabilities that the U.S. has and what they could be doing, it's incredibly frustrating to watch, especially when there are statutes that are being put forward to eliminate non-conviction-based forfeiture. And Helen, I think in the UK, didn't you guys just get, there's like a statute that you guys are passing to make it easier to get crypto and address the need for speed, right? Did I see that come out? Yeah. Yeah. So I think um, it's the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Act. And I think, it, I think it just came into force last week, actually. And the idea is that, yes, law enforcement will focus more on asset recovery themselves in, in the crypto sphere, and it gives them um, a few extra tools. Um, I mean, I might be saying something a bit controversial here, and it may not, it may be partly because it's not my area, but it looked to me like a lot of the tools already existed, but it's more trying to encourage 
their use really and sharpening them up a bit. Um, I mean, the, again, controversially perhaps, um, the problem we have in England, I think, and, and one of the reasons people go down the civil recovery route is that a lot of the services, public services are underfunded. So I think, you know, police, of course, we have forensic experts, of course, we have digital experts and asset recovery experts, but the public attitude and appetite for that sort of work is is less than for the type of, you know, overt violence and uh, and, and what have you. So I think when funds are scarcer in England for public services, um, I think you'll find that victims of financial crime are perhaps not given as much of the public purse as um, other victims of crime. Yeah, I could second that with the United States as well. I, I think funding is a major issue, especially at a state and local level, because they just don't have the funding to get that advanced cryptocurrency training that they need to feel confident in completing these types of cases. And I really do think it is an issue of you just need to do it a few times and not put it in the too hard pile and give it a shot. And then you'll figure it out and you'll start to get better at it. And I noticed this at DOJ too, like when we first started doing the cryptocurrency cases, I worked with the same US attorney's offices and the same agents for like years before it branched out. And I'd stop hearing so many people say, I don't, I don't do crypto cases. I don't do that stuff. It took a really long time for just cryptocurrency training to get woven into general DOJ training or into training at FLETC, which is a federal law enforcement training facility. So I think as that's been incorporated, we've seen more and more districts and more and more special agents work those types of cases. But it's still, I, I think, underfunded and, and undertrained. And I think while federal law enforcement's doing a great job trying to get more of that training, I just it just seems to me like more of it's needed still. 100%. I think that's probably the one thing that if I could, and I'll ask you guys, what's the note that you would end on? Um, so, so be thinking about that. <laughs> but I think if I could say like one of the takeaways, if you took away anything from this, Joanna and I were part of a small, like the, the asset recovery community in DOJ is very small and tight because not enough people know it or do it, which is really sad. And if I could say one thing, it would be that we need more people who understand asset recovery both from a criminal and a civil aspect, from a conviction and a non-conviction based perspective, from an international perspective of what tools the United States attorneys have versus what tools the UK or Singapore or foreign jurisdictions have because this technology is so globalized. And so our response needs to be globalized. And the ability to trace assets and follow crypto is something that we have got to build more capacity in. Um, and I know that's something that all of us are really passionate about. And it'll probably be the topic of another podcast that we'll do just because we could spend an entire hour talking about the need for crypto investigators. But um, I would love for you guys to have the last word, Helen, Joanna, things that you would want people to their the takeaway from crypto asset recovery last thoughts my last thought would be especially in the united states we've seen a lot of pushback on the civil forfeiture route and there's a big case coming up in the supreme court which if you have a chance to listen to steph casella's podcast on recently they've been phenomenal i would just like everyone to kind of think about things holistically and when you hear things like this happened to victims the civil forfeiture happened to victims think about all of the victims that civil asset forfeiture is also helping 
helping and what you'd be taking away from them without that. And I think unless you look at both sides of that equation, you're not really getting the full picture on, on the severity of limiting asset forfeiture in this country would have. I think that's a, a really good and impression point. Helen? Um, I think for me, the fact you can recover these assets should be a key takeaway. Because so often I think people think, oh, the blockchain's untraceable, it's pseudonymous, I'll never get it back. There is a way you might need to think about the economics of it in certain cases, but there there is often a way to get things back, particularly if you work you work quickly. So I would say to people who are investing in this area, consider it like your bank account. If somebody steals things from your bank account, think about claims against your bank and about tracing the perpetrator. Um, there's no reason why you shouldn't look into it for crypto as well. I just think, yeah, crypto just shouldn't go in the too hard pile. And having worked both physical and digital assets in the US, I can tell you like once you get crypto assets into your custody and it's safe and secure, the maintenance on it is a lot less than managing a boat or managing a plane and, and having to have all sorts of people come in to maintain that asset. Um, once you actually get it into custody, it is much more like a bank account where it can sit in place frozen until the case is adjudicated. So I think in a lot of ways, people overcomplicate the crypto asset seizures and asset recovery process. It is quite streamlined once you start working on it. Well, I will say it helps to have two subject matter experts who make it very relatable and accessible. So we're super excited to have had you on the podcast. I just want to say a huge thank you to both of you, Helen, Joanna. Thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate you sharing your knowledge. I also want to say a huge thank you to our sponsor, Bracewell LLP, to Emily Kobrowski for her invaluable technical support and everyone listening. Thank you for coming, positive or negative. We'd love to have your feedback and we hope you'll rate us online. Please let us know if you have comments, questions, or thoughts for future podcasts. And for anyone who's interested in learning more about the association, our global events, or the initiatives that we're working on to increase inclusion, please check out our public LinkedIn page, our Twitter or Instagram pages at AWIT Global, or our webpage at www.womenincrypto.org, which is also where you can sign up and join. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you next time. 